Good morning, church family. So Pastor Jalisa introduced already that we are sort of stepping sideways from our preaching through the book of Acts. We've been in Luke and Acts for the better part of three years, which is all centered around the good news of the kingdom of God. And um, here we are in Advent, and we're going we're gonna to focus on longing for the king and for his kingdom, but slightly different than we often do. We're going to look at unfulfilled prophecy, where, whereas we often look at prophetic hope of the Old Testament that's fulfilled in Jesus. We're now going to look at what, what prophecy from both Old and New Testaments aren't yet fulfilled. What do we long for? And uh, I want to introduce that series. I'm gonna, I want to take a couple of minutes before I read the texts and just introduce that series by saying this. That oftentimes, if you listen to Christians, in particular preachers, and I among them, you'll notice that we sometimes scapegoat the religious leaders, Pharisees, as we read through the Gospels. We sometimes look at them and say, now, how how could they not get it? While they were... They didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah who fulfilled the Old Testament because Jesus was bringing a spiritual kingdom and they were longing for uh, a physical kingdom. That's how come they missed him. You familiar with that? You've heard you've heard people say that maybe you've said that. Well, that's partly true. Jesus did bring a very spiritual kingdom. He brought a kingdom from heaven in his person. But to their credit, there were many, many promises about the Messiah that Jesus was not fulfilling in his first coming. Many things that were spoken about what the Messiah would do and bring and usher in on earth that were not fulfilled. So the mystery, Paul talks about the mystery of the kingdom of God, is that it didn't come all at once. It came small, in a baby, in a man, going to death on a cross. Not what we'd expect. It came small and it will grow, as the parable of the mustard seed says, to fill the whole earth. It'll grow up to be very big. But that growing hasn't come to completion. There are many prophecies about the king, the Messiah king, rooted in the Old Testament that have not yet been fulfilled, that we're still longing for. And so we're going to open up five of them this Advent, and I'll just uh, read the, the, the titles that we've given to them. We're longing for the kingdom to be cleansed. That is, for judgment of the proud and the evil, and all who rebel against God. The cleansing of the kingdom. We are longing for the false prince to be destroyed, for the judgment and the removal of Satan and his kingdom. We are longing for the king to be acknowledged, for the universal acknowledgement of Jesus Christ as king and Lord. Many places in Scripture particularly Philippians 2, say every knee will bow. Everyone will acknowledge you are king. 
We're longing for the future glory of the kingdom of God when the scripture says that God is all in all and that the glory of God covers the earth like the waters cover the sea fully, completely. And we're longing for the consummation of the kingdom or the coming together of the king and his bride and that time when he restores the shalom that was in creation, except he brings it in a new creation. So we're going to look forward today and over the next four weeks to these prophetic hopes that that are both in Isaiah. They're all over, but we're going to choose texts from Isaiah and Revelation that parallel each other. And we're going to we're going to ask the, the fundamental question that we're going to ask in this series is, what does this hope mean for us and how do we live in light of it? This being the case, the fact that God promises to do such and such, how do we live? So this morning, I'm going to read from I want to say one more thing, actually, before I read the text, uh, I said to the credit of those in in the Old Testament who were struggling to recognize that Jesus was a Messiah, I think it would be helpful to name that one way that the gift of prophecy works in the Bible. That when God gives a person prophetic insight, often in, in the in in the form of visions or pictures of the future, and they record it, it's kind of like that person, when they're looking they're seeing something and recording it. It's kind of like they're looking at a mountain range off in the distance. When you look at a mountain range, you can see distinct peaks in that range. But you can't see what's between them. You can't see how far apart they are. You just see the range. And so when God gives these pictures in the Old Testament, sometimes you've probably all had this, you're reading through a chapter of Isaiah and you think, oh, that, I recognize that's fulfilled in Jesus. That's a promise that's fulfilled in him. And then you read two verses later and you go, that doesn't seem to have happened yet. And you get a little confused. And you go, I thought I'm in a chapter that's fulfilled in Jesus. But then that's not fulfilled. And then you read a little further and you go, I think that's fulfilled in Jesus too. And then you read a section and you go, that really seems like it's talking about the end of time, doesn't it? This is the idea. The prophet doesn't know. The prophet gets the revelation from God and they are faithful to bring it or to give it. That doesn't mean that they have the interpretation or the application of it. Okay. So my Old Testament professor in seminary said, uh, don't put a comma where God puts a period. And he said that because this text that we love here in Isaiah 61, behold, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. This prophecy about Jesus. He's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up brokenhearted, to set the captives free. And then this to proclaim the year or the time of God's favor, comma, and the day of God's judgment. Well, the time of his favor wasn't the time of his judgment. We're still in the time of his favor. And so when Jesus read that text to open his ministry in Luke 4, one of the reasons that they wanted to drive him out of town is because he wasn't bringing judgment. 
He was stopping and putting a period where they thought there was a comma in the text. So what what we'd like us to hear is that there are there are themes in the Bible that are rooted solidly opened up in the Old Testament that are going to now be echoed in Revelation very clearly that all point to what the people of God, where the kingdom of God is going and what the people of God are longing for in terms of promises that God's already made about when King Jesus returns to earth. So this morning, I'm not going to ask you to read along in your Bibles, but on the screen, because I'm going to read a number of passages. I'm going to read from Psalm 2, a bunch of Isaiah texts, and then uh, Revelation 19. Psalm 2. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father or begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. That means very strongly or sovereignly. You'll dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings of the earth be wise be warned you rulers of the earth serve the lord with fear and trembling pay homage or honor the son lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way for his wrath may soon be kindled blessed are all who take refuge in him here's the theme of that verse god's son a king will exercise a sovereign rule over all the nations. He will execute the wrath of God against those who do not pay homage or honor to him and to the Father. Isaiah 11, 4, B and 5. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. See that rod again? Listen for themes between these. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Isaiah twenty six twenty one. See, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins. The earth will disclose the bloodshed on it. The earth will conceal its slain no longer. Isaiah 66. See, the Lord is coming with fire and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire for the for with fire and with his sword. The Lord will execute judgment on all people and many will be those slain by the Lord. I want to just flip. This isn't in the script, but I want to flip real quick to second Thessalonians and read you an echo of that from the New Testament. Where Paul says, this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the majesty of his, of, 
shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. Isaiah 2. Go into the rocks, hide in the ground from dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. The eyes of the arrogant man will be humbled and the pride of men brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. The arrogance of man will be brought low and the pride of men humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day and idols will totally disappear. People will flee to caves in the rocks, to holes in the ground from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. When he rises to shake the earth in that day, men will throw away to the rodents and bats their idols of silver and idols of gold, which they made to worship. They will flee to caverns in the rocks and overhanging crags from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. And I'm not going to read the parallel, but Hebrews 12 talks about things being shaken again. Here's the theme of all those passages. A great and dreadful day is coming when the Lord will reveal himself in the splendor of his majesty. He will shake the earth, ridding it of human pride and arrogance, punishing the wicked and all those who remain in their sins. In that day, he alone will be exalted. And then from Revelation 19, 11 to 18. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. Notice that this is not a one-moment event. He makes war. He's riding a white horse. That's a picture of a conquering king. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. That's a direct quote from Psalm 2. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried out in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair. Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. The theme, Jesus Christ is coming in glory with the armies of God 
to execute judgment and wrath of God against all remaining rebellion and wickedness. And so here's the overall theme of all those passages. Again, a great and dreadful day is coming in which Christ the King will reveal himself in the splendor of his majesty to shake the earth, executing judgment and wrath of God against all who continue in rebellion against him, ridding the earth of human evil, pride, and arrogance. In that day, Christ alone will be exalted. The word of God. About a month or six weeks ago, I drove across the river on Leonard Street and somehow at some point when I crossed the bridge, out of the corner of my eye, I spotted a police car sitting in a parking lot on the side of the road. And my first and immediate reaction was, (gasps) I had to, like all systems check, am I speeding, am I doing anything wrong, you know? And I thought, Dave, what are you doing? Why are you afraid of the police officer? And the more I thought about it, I thought, this happens every time I see a police officer. Now, these people are here to keep law and order, and I love them. And I'm a law-abiding citizen, and so I got to thinking about it. And I got to thinking, where is this reaction coming from? Why am I jumping when I see a police officer? And here's my sense. That reaction is coming from that time in my life when I was not a law-abiding citizen, when I got pulled over 12 times in three years and um, really did fear the police uh, who were keeping law and order. And I shifted from being somebody who had a a lead foot and, um, among other things, and was trying to evade being caught by the police to being a law-abiding citizen who was trying a lot harder to come closer to the speed limit. And I can't lie while I'm preaching. But here's the the point. There's this residual effect in me from my previous time of not being a law-abiding person, okay, that I carried with me. And why am I naming that? Because when we start to talk about the judgment of God, the sense that I get is that many of us have that same sort of residual feelings. I I would call it an angst or an anguish, or it makes us a little squeamish. But I don't know that I hear people in the church pining for, yearning for what we read in the text today. I don't know that I hear people praying eagerly for the return of Jesus and the, the fulfillment of the judgment that he's going to bring. And that's a problem. That's a problem. So I want to stop first and foremost and say, we don't fear judgment. We who are in Christ have come through death and resurrection with him. Our sins have been nailed to the cross. We don't fear judgment. Now, if you're here this morning and you are not, you do not have new life in Jesus Christ through faith in him, meaning that you have, you have not recognized, I am a sinner who lives his life his own way 
and I do things that displease God, and if you have not recognized that and cried out to God for mercy, then you're under his judgment. Then the first thing that you need to do this morning is say, God, have mercy on me and forgive me, a sinner. And God who loves you and who gave Jesus Christ for you will do that. And he will give you new life and he'll give you a new heart and he'll give you a hunger and a thirst in that heart for righteousness. So if you're here this morning and that's you, come to Jesus. Because judgment is coming. For the rest of us who are in Christ and who find ourselves in Paul's shoes where he says, I sometimes do what I don't want to do. Even that is a longing for righteousness. And that longing for righteousness comes from the Spirit of God within us. You can take assurance. This is not something to be feared. Judgment is something to be zealously longed for. Why do I say that? Well, because God's judgment against human, and remember this morning we're talking about against human Evil, human pride, human arrogance, human rebellion against God. God's judgment against that will mean this. That no unsuspecting child will ever again be taken advantage of or hurt. That no longer will babies lose their lives inside of wombs. That no longer will dictators live rich at the expense of starving millions, that no grandparent will ever again lose their retirement savings to a swindler, that no migrant will ever die trying to escape poverty and oppression, that no ambulance loaded with bombs will ever be driven into marketplaces, that no longer will hashtag me too be needed, that no human being will ever be bought or sold or traded, that no soldier will ever give their life to support some other leader's greed. No longer will people lose their lives or be persecuted for the color of their skin. No longer will gunmen burst into schools and churches and bars and concerts spraying bullets and stealing lives. Judgment means Jesus cleanses the earth of evil, of everything. The Bible says the new heavens and the new earth will be the home of righteousness. There won't be anything. And so we as the people of God ought to be living with a longing, holy, burning, fire longing for the new heavens and the new earth. We ought to be a people that are zealously, zealously doing the, what the, what the, how the New Testament ends. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Why do they say come? Why is the New Testament Why does the New Testament read like Jesus is coming imminently? Because they all longed for him to come imminently. They all knew these promises were yet unfulfilled. Hey, you came, you're the Messiah, you saved, but you promised you were gonna, you were gonna do much more than this. And I want to submit to you this morning that there is, there's a reason why I think we don't live with this holy longing, and there's a danger to it. And then I want to give us a call. Here's, here's what I think the reason is. It hurts. It hurts. Longing hurts. 
Longing means something is unfulfilled. Longing means we're missing something. You don't long for something. Think about a think about a parent whose child is strayed, maybe from the Lord, maybe from them. And think about the longing of that parent's heart for reconciliation, to have that child come home. They just want to be back in right relationship. Maybe the child won't talk to them, won't visit them. Think about the pain of that parent's heart. To have longing is to have pain. And we're not made for pain. It's not what God created us for. And so in some sense, it's really natural that we avoid pain. But listen to this. Romans 8 says, All creation groans with eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. There's a groaning that's happening in the very earth. The earth is held in captivity. And then Paul says that inside of creation, there's this group of people, the believers, first fruits of the new creation, who groan inwardly. So the creation's groaning, and then inside of creation, there's the church is groaning. God, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And Paul says, we don't know how to pray. We groan and we don't know how to pray. But inside of the church who's groaning, there's a spirit, a Holy Spirit, first fruits of a new creation. And that spirit is groaning inside of us. There's this, Romans 8 is a picture of a threefold layer of groaning. The creation's groaning. The church is groaning. The spirit is groaning. Why, what are they groaning for? Fulfillment. Time when Jesus wipes away the tears, when he puts an end to injustice, when this world becomes a home of righteousness. So God calls us from Exodus to Revelation. He says, my identity for you is that you're a kingdom of priests. That's what he said right right before he betrothed himself to Israel at Mount Sinai. He said to Moses, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Peter writes to the New Testament believers and he says, you are a royal priesthood, a holy people. John opens Revelation by saying to our God and Father who loves us, who has freed us by his blood and who has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. This idea of being royalty and priesthood is that right now we share in Jesus' reign. We're one with him, one spirit with him. That means we also share his heart, his heart of longing. Okay, and then we uh, the idea that we're a priesthood means that we mediate with him between one reality, that of heaven and the other one, that of earth, and that we We embody heaven, the new creation that's already worked in us because we have the first fruits of the Spirit uh, on earth. And we proclaim it. That there is a king who reigns and who's coming and who's going to put down his enemies. 
Now let's get back to this question. Why is this difficult for us? Pain? We don't want to hurt. We're not made to hurt. And so here's the temptation. The temptation is that we get anesthetized against pain. We watch, we watch it on TV and we say, oh, more bad, more junk, more evil, more. This is the way the world is. And we just kind of join our voice in the, the lament or the complaint or we just turn it off. We just turn it off. Or you know, you get the World Vision catalog in the mail and they want you to support some children in an African country and you look at that catalog and oh, oh you start to think about all the malnourishment and all that they don't have, and you think about what you have, and you feel guilty, and you don't want to feel too much of that. So maybe you give a little bit and you put it away, or maybe you just put it away. Or because you're created for happiness, you, without thinking about it, subtly, subconsciously uh, shape the events, the things you make choices all geared toward personal happiness. So things that make me feel good, I welcome into my life. Relationships that make me feel good, I keep in my life. Activities that do the same thing, I gather to myself. We've all got our own selection of them, but we naturally are made for joy. We're made for happiness. But if we aren't careful, we will keep ourselves from feeling the pain that's in the heart of Father God. And we need to feel that pain. Here's the, here's the, 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 the issue. That to be, I believe, to be faithful to the Lord Jesus requires us to live in tension all our lives long. Not, not ever saying, we don't want joy, we don't want happiness. Of course we do. But that like, like a Lord who leaves heaven and comes to the hurt and the dirtiness of earth and gives up his glory, that we would make intentional choices to move toward the pain of the world, to move toward the things that hurt and that are wrong and that are off, and that we would, I think, first and foremost, let that movement toward it move us into prayer. So I just want to submit to us this morning that the, 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 the way that we function like a, a kingdom of priests on earth is that we, we allow ourselves to feel the pain of the world, and not all of it. You're not God. I'm not Jesus. We don't, we don't, we don't have to take, have a Messiah complex. Okay? We aren't, there's limits to our humanity. But in our lives, wherever God's put us, who's around us, who hurts, what do we see? We feel it. We don't just stop there. We translate it into, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. 
come. We keep our eyes fixed on a future. Because if we don't have our eyes fixed on a future, and if we aren't ready to talk about that future, if we aren't ready to give the hope of that future, there's a day coming when Jesus Christ is going to wipe away tears. If we aren't ready to bring that in a moment's notice, who will do it? Where's hope? Where's truth? It's not there. We are the light of the world. Yeah? So, we have to kindle. We have to kindle. In order to be able to faithfully do this, we've got to kindle amongst ourselves and within ourselves the knowledge of the kingdom of God and the king. The king who's coming, what the king said he'll do, what the king will do, we pray for, we long for, and then when we do that, we live with this awareness and we're ready to talk about it. How many of you have got neighbors that complain? Are you ready to talk to your neighbors about a king who's going to set everything in order? He has governance. You might not like the government of the United States. Let me tell you about the government of Jesus. Because my Bible tells me that one day every government will answer to him, will give account. It says he put thrones in place. And it also says he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Okay. So when we kindle an understanding and awareness of the governance of Jesus, he reigns and he is coming and he will reign on this earth. He must reign until all his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. Psalm 110, 1. 1 Corinthians 15 says after he's defeated his enemies and Satan and death, then... He will hand the kingdom over to God the Father. And that God will be all in all. So as we make our way through these next five weeks, we are going to kindle, we're going to stir up this awareness of the promises of Jesus and and our role as a kingdom of priests to be longing for his coming. And I want to just close by submitting to us this. That although I mentioned at the beginning, uh, judgment makes us squeamish. And um, I think rightly so. Because we don't want to see anybody that we love come into judgment. And in fact, the Bible tells us that God desires all people who come to a knowledge of salvation. We can also live with the freedom to know that it isn't on us. To, to, to ultimately or finally determine whether someone comes, we are just called to testify, to be faithful, to proclaim the truth. Okay? Let it, let, let it be said that no one in our lives did not hear that God has righteous standards that they're going to be called to account before Because we failed to say something. But let us testify and then leave the work in their hearts to the Holy Spirit. Marissa, if you would come and just prepare to lead us in in a singing. I want to close the sermon by reading the words of the song that we're about to sing.
all of creation, all of the earth, make straight a highway, a path for the Lord. Jesus is coming soon. Call back the sinner. Wake up the saint. Let every nation shout of your fame. Jesus is coming soon. Like a bride waiting for her groom will be a church ready for you. Every heart longing for our King. We sing, even so come, Lord Jesus, come. Even so come, Lord Jesus, come. There will be justice. All will be new. Your name forever, faithful and true. Jesus is coming soon. Let's stand to sing.